Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is our elite irregular panelist, Bruce Garrick. Hello to all of the gaming people in their talkings. I think you flubbed that one a little bit, a little bit, Bruce. I think you've had, I think you've had better hello gamers. Uh, I'm sorry. And we also welcome back our friend, senior game designer at Riot Games now, Ananda Gupta. Ananda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Before we get started, Ananda, I'm just curious. Is there is there a little part of you that wishes you were working on XCOM 2 now that they're doing sort of a weird insurgency thing? Is that because that, that seems like it would be such so in your wheelhouse? When I heard about it, I was like, oh my goodness, this this seems like a perfect marriage. Well, I spent a long time working on XCOM 2. I uh, I was working on XCOM 2 for almost two years. So, oh. uh, so, so I, I did. Uh, there's there's a lot of my heart and soul in XCOM 2. And I'm really looking forward to playing it uh, as uh, when it comes out this year. Well, I have a question then. Uh, or is there a part of you that wishes you were working on Computer Pax Britannica? Uh, there is a part of me that, that wishes that too. I um, so I've I, I've actually been been listening to a uh, in Maryland uh, when I was still in Maryland. I, I commuted to work and I listened to a lot of uh, 19th century uh, history courses, hmm. by, especially those. Uh, so from the teaching company and. Uh, there's one professor at the teaching company, uh, Professor Patrick Allitt, who teaches, I think, at Emory, I want to say. And he has just this array of wonderful courses about the 19th century. So I listened to his Industrial Revolution course and his British Empire course. And I've got, you know, I'm, we're waiting on the Victorian one, uh, but he has one all just all about the society and culture of Victorian England. And um, and I need, uh, and, and so like that, that definitely stoked within me the desire to do a, uh, to, to do, to do something set in that period. Hmm. Um. I'm thinking about a board game along those lines as well, but uh, but that'll have to wait till after Imperial Struggle's done. Okay. So as far as tonight goes, we have kind of a we have kind of a vague topic to start out with because it basically stems from something that happened uh, when I was in England playing Hearts of Iron Four at the at the Paradox event, which uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago on the show, mm-hmm. and gave the uh, Hearts of Iron Four build we saw some some rather tough love mm. uh, to, to be quite frank, but. It basically, like, I had a conversation with our friend TJ Hafer while, while we were out there okay. uh, about sort of the tech tree in Hearts of Iron 4, which is as macro scale World War II game as you can get. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that TJ had noticed was that, at least in the build we were playing, across all the factions, uh, you know, the Nazi Germany, Japan, the US, UK... Uh, across all the factions, all the weapons of war were equal across tech trees. Okay. So if you had, like, a level 4 medium tank, uh, it was the same as everyone else's level 4 medium tank. It, j- it basically just had to do with what era of the war you were in and, and whether you'd, you'd teched up that far. Mm-hmm. And I ended up have it's It, it actually bothered me. A little bit, uh, be, because I, you know, I was, I was sitting out there having a chat with with, with TJ and and Rowan Kaiser and and Fraser Brown, and you know, a few of us started ranting about how well that was preposterous. You couldn't, no, that's not World War Two. You can't, you can't have a Panzer IV be the same as a T thirty four, the same as a Sherman. That's that's absurd. That's that's completely wrong. But that's a false equivalency. Um, but keep going. Well, but that that anyway. So that's. That kind of brought me up short because midway through this little rant, I, I started to realize, like, my God, um, I've become one of those people. 
I've become <laughs> one of those historical mm. accuracy uh, nutsos who begin to apply it fanatically and without distinction pretty much across context. Uh you know, years ago, years ago, I used to make fun of the people who, who would take part in those the operational art of war flame wars about the hundred tanks versus uh, the the hundred jeeps versus a a tiger tank mm-hmm. uh, because it was this this silly little uh, discussion about an edge case in the system, and yet somehow in, in the case of Hearts of Iron Four, this one particular issue where on the scale Hearts of Iron Four operates it might be perfectly valid and even advisable to create that equivalency across the different factions and yet it bothered me and it still does on some level and i so i kind of want to talk about like what we're actually talking about when we talk about historical accuracy uh what what when we 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 apply that term you you see that term applied a lot and we tend to apply it kind of fast and loose but i kind of want to investigate what we're driving at when we make arguments based on claims of historical accuracy hmm. so that's kind of the topic for tonight wow that's a that's 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 a good one that's a meaty one yeah i've been um, going forever on this i mean the games so, so games that uh games that sacrifice historical so like uh games that sacrifice historical accuracy uh to my mind do it most cleanly when they are doing it for sort of one of two purposes, right? Either they're trying to uh, they're trying to simplify things. They're trying to simplify things out because the historical accuracy is not contributing to an interesting player decision, or they're trying to put they're trying to correct for hindsight, right? So, uh, an example of hindsight correction is in Mark Herman's classic for the people, uh, which is a, a sort of grand strategy civil war game, and uh, in it, Washington D.C. is not particularly much harder to take than any other city, even though it was probably the most fortified city on the continent by, you know, late 1861, mm-hmm. uh, for obvious geographic reasons. And people questioned this, and Mark said, uh, if I gave Washington, D.C. a special fortification bonus, then the Union player wasn't paranoid about it, as paranoid about it as he needed to be in order for him to feel the same wrenching feeling of, uh, if I do, you know, if I pull troops from here and here, uh, Am I leaving Washington too vulnerable? Um, and so that's a that's a that's a, a straight up that's a straight up simplification or a straight up change to uh, to, to make sure that the player with hindsight doesn't uh, doesn't benefit and then throw up his hands. Again. You know what, what what were they worried about? Like, and actually, that's a really good example. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and then in, in simplification, um, in simplification, you can uh, even the most complex historical war games. I'm thinking here of uh, of Bruce Harper's uh, A World at War uh, and its and its ancestors, uh, uh, Rise and Decline of the Third Reich and Empire of the Rising Sun. Um, even even those ga- and those those games are uh, you know monster kings, right? Those games take days to play and, and have just an enormous uh, rules heft. And nonetheless, in those games, um, uh, for example, every every nation's naval factors are are the same. They just have a uh, they just have a different naval nationality DRM, uh, right? Mm-hmm. It's right. Uh, yeah, plus it's one a for very, the Germans, yeah, yeah, very straightforward, uh, a very straightforward uh, qualitative difference that uh, does not go anywhere near capturing the actual qualitative differences mm-hmm. uh, that 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 the technology and the doctrine differences between the nations uh, would would imply, right? right? They just wanted to say, well, even though we're a super king monster game, we're gonna we're gonna make the fleets 
uh, you know, the Germans are exactly 8% better than the British mm-hmm. <laughs> at, the, at the start of the war. And that's, right. and that's that. And, and I guess they just decided that um, that was the granularity of decision that was uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So, the, but the, I guess the question for me becomes, you know, what does historical accuracy mean in ter- for you, Ananda? And, and, and Rob, also, do you, when, you say, when somebody says historical accuracy, does that mean if I play this game against a person that is uh, of equal skill, um, or let's, if, let's, let's put it a different way, if I play this game against a, um, another person and our skill levels are uh, differential or are are separated by the level that the historical commanders were, will we get a historical result? Or does it mean that playing the game makes it very hard to get anything other than a historical result? Or does it mean that all the things that happened in that battle happen in the game? Or does it just mean that all of the things that take place in that battle, all all the components, all the forces, have some kind of really... Uh, exact uh, stratification and capability differential that corresponded to the actual forces, and then you just kind of let them go like electric football. So what what's the actual sort of historical accuracy definition that we're, that we're going for here? I, I think for... When, when I was sort of thinking up this topic, to an extent, right? To, to an extent, that term, when it's deployed can refer to any or all of them and over the course of the show i guarantee you i will probably begin budging the difference between those distinctions you just laid out Uh however in the case i put at the start of the show and probably what i tend to think about the most when i sort of regard the arguments from historical accuracy Uh i'm probably thinking of that that latter case you mentioned where i want the stuff of the historical event, right? The, you know, the gear, the equipment, you know, as many of like the hard factors as possible uh, sort of thrown in there. And then we play around with them and we see how things go. Why? I think that's probably what I was, what I was getting at. Why is my next question. Why what? Why is that what you want? It's not a trick question. Well, and it, it very like there are games where I want this, and there are games when I don't, mm-hmm. right? Right. Uh, but so, like, let's take the Hearts of Iron case that the, that I put forth at the start. I think mean, it bothered me just because I, I probably know I, I probably know just enough about World War II to be dangerous to myself. Uh, but hmm. in that case, when we're talking about like, okay, this is World War II, but they've flattened the differences between all of these forms of military equipment. Um. Okay, so like, uh, you know, just because you loaned me that book not long ago, Bruce, uh-huh. uh, you know the, the the Spitfire and the BF one hundred and nine. Okay. Um, the difference between those aircraft is pretty important, or it, it it feels like it should be important because we know they had really different capabilities, and uh-huh. those played out in some some really critical those differences played out in really critical ways. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, at a pivotal moment in the war. Uh-huh. So if I'm playing a World War II game, that's like. Bah! they're basically they basically have parody uh-huh. then i'm like then i'm sitting there i'm like but then you're not letting me play world war ii except you know in, in a game like hearts are on four probably 
you are and those those aircraft had differences they're sort of situational like the battle of britain was not the be all and end all of those aircraft but uh, you know it, it's just one of those things where okay but now you're not now you're not letting me play with the toys of world war ii and then it's like well it's it doesn't even feel like world war ii now because these things don't behave the way i've been taught to think they should behave so that yeah like that that invites that invites so of the of the types of historical accuracy that you listed bruce uh I, I think I think there I would not accept any of those as a as a definition of historical accuracy from a certainly from a game design point of view. I um I feel that a game is historically accurate if the players feel like they're uh, like like they are uh, in the shoes of the of the of the people that the that the game designers are trying to put them in, and and for that reason um so so Rob's Rob's point about well the Spitfire and the BF one hundred nine um if if the game is if the game is is uh, is is aimed at putting the player emotionally in the place of a person who cared a lot about that distinction, then you you can't erase that distinction. And if and, and frankly, uh, to and, and so I would go further and say that furthermore, there's just there's very it's very hard for me to imagine, although not impossible, uh, it's very hard for me to imagine a grand strategy of World War II game where where those two things are the same because yeah. and anybody making decisions at that level is is going to care um and so for that and, and so yeah like I, I i feel that i feel that you are in the you need to be in thinking about it in terms of the emotional resonance of the decisions and the situation that you're trying to get the player to empathize with and you know this is why it's why the struggle the domino effect is real right because we wanted the players firmly in the mentality of people right. who thought it was real at the time um, because all the other all the other categories of historical accuracy you listed, I mean, for example, uh, you know, two players of equal skill meeting, uh, then we'll get a historical result. I mean, that 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 that's kind of empty to me because you know that's an empty conception of historical accuracy to me because because uh, the game designer can just define victory however they want, mm -hmm. right? Uh, just you know, just like most Gettysburg games do. You know, you don't you know the, the Confederates don't have to shatter the Union to win, for example. Um, and right. so you can just craft you can just craft victory conditions around how you know whatever well, you want. And I didn't really mean conditions. victory conditions, though. I'm sorry to interrupt that, but I just want to point out before yep. we go too far down this. I, what I really meant was like in a bulge yeah. game that if you play bulge between two equal players, then the historical bulge will be you know recreated. Bastone won't be taken, and and whether you call that a victory or not, or what the conditions you know, are, like or not. channeling toward outcomes. Right. Yeah. Uh, hang on. I also want to throw in a quick disclaimer here too. Um, because we talked about Hearts of Iron 4 a couple weeks ago, and, and we're pretty harsh towards it. I have no idea whether or not any of the stuff that prompted this mm -hmm. is going to be in the final version of Hearts of Iron 4. Mm -hmm. I would wager, actually, it's not, uh, because that game's probably being uh, changed considerably between now and release. And also, they were trying to put together a preview build uh, that a lot of things hadn't been balanced, so I can easily see they they you know why they might have just fudged it and leveled a lot of... Mm -hmm. things with tech yeah uh so none of this should be taken as a comment on hearts of iron 4 or or what it's eventually going to do with tech but it's just the fact of how tech and military equipment was modeled at that one event that prompted this and that's why i'm using it as an example oh. but what that game is going to be i don't know okay well fair enough but i, I cut, cut off ananda and i wanted him to keep going but I, I wanted to also say that this kind of sucks because it sounds like all i'm going to be doing all all for the rest the next 45 minutes is agreeing with ananda so um <laughs> Because I, what I, I really wanted to get to that point, Robin, that's the reason that I said why, which is that um, 
I wanted to know why you why you want to have that, because I think that that's really important in determining what historical accuracy means and that sort of emotional resonance. It's the, the idea that I keep bringing up here, and I'll just say it again, touching history. And touching history for different people means different things. And, you know, if you, you play a historical game because for me, I, I, it seems to be very difficult for me to imagine people, and I guess, you know, our, our um, uh, sometime uh, but uh, founding um, panelist uh, Julian Murdoch is, I found out from him when, in a previous conversation that on this show that uh, he actually isn't that into the history. He likes the games, and therefore he likes the history about the games. But I think that's a real exception. I think people who play these games really do like the history. And then the history is important for them for different reasons. The different parts of the history are important to them for different reasons. And therefore, the parts of the history that you get right are very much involved in whether the players consider them historically accurate. Now, I'll let Ananda just keep going, because I think he basically is going to say a bunch of stuff that I may not have said as, as eloquently. <laughs> I, um, I, I think, so, but talk, I mean, talking about people who enjoy playing historical games, um, I, I do think there is a certain aesthetic appreciation that people have apart from the emotional resonance of the position the game puts you in uh, that is sort of marveling at the cleverness of translating this or that historical phenomenon into game mechanics, right? I think people, I think people sometimes see a game and regardless of how well it plays or how they make, how it makes them feel, um, they look at the mechanic and they say, Oh, that's, that's just kind of cool and elegant. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, I think that's, that's nice. It's really nice when that happens, but that's not part of appreciating games for their historical accuracy. I'm thinking here, for example, of, um, of Ted racers game, the dark Valley, Mm -hmm. which, uh, in which, uh, all the Soviet, all the Soviet infantry divisions start out, uh, with secret strengths. Strengths mm-hmm. are hidden from both players. And so, you know, there's a 10 stack sitting in Kiev, and as the Germans are like, well, I'm going to hit this stack, and I mean, I know I know the overall mix of the Soviet players, so probably some of them are going to be garbage, um, but neither player knows exactly how those guys are going to be uh, stand up in combat until they get attacked for the first time, and then they get flipped over. And, I, you know, that's kind of cool. It's like, oh, uh, we, we just, you know, the Soviet army is just really untested, and, mm-hmm. and, and Ted chose to emphasize that, and and, and that's how he got there. And does that mean that you might have a very a historical outcome at Kiev? Mm-hmm. Because hey, right. uh, all ten of them are are, are one defense, and <laughs> and your right. commissars didn't show up, and, right. and that's too bad. Um, but it still put you in that same mentality of I've got this army that I've got to defend this huge space with, and I have no idea how good it is. Yeah, I think that was you done. Um, Panzer Group Guderian did that. Um, uh, the uh, you know the un, un, untried units. Um, uh, that was I think a big deal uh, when that came out. It was like seventy. Oh gosh, seventy-eight, I think, I think, or maybe eighty. I can't remember when Panzer Group Guderian came out. Um, but uh, is that really the case? Because I, I, I'm playing Dark Valley right now by by Vassal, although I haven't played it in a while since we got kind of sidetracked. But um, I don't remember the untried units. Um, you know, I may be thinking of, I, I may be confusing one of Ted Ted Racer's other yeah. Eastern Front games with it. But in any um, case, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So so the so the idea of the units being. Um, of the, of the units being unknown is is really the historical like you have all these these units that have never fought before they're untested they might break they might fight really well and that question is more important than what their actual strength ends up being um, right that's right because it puts you it puts you as the decision maker right. in the right spot right and and so similarly like I mean so, so sometimes uh, back you know back in the day historic historical war gamers uh, had a phrase they they would refer to as idiot rules right like. Here's a game, and um, you can't move north of this hex line because uh, be- because if 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 the if the commander on the spot at the actual event 
had had the wit to do that, it would have been really easy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, but he know but 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 you know that with hindsight, so it's just a, a rule. You know, an idiot. It's forcing you to be an idiot. Right. And I think I think this uh, because he was too, and the battle's not interesting if if that commander wasn't an idiot. And I think one of the great advances and or not, I, I think games have made a lot of progress in handling and handling idiot rules elegantly in the form of decision making rather than in the form of just sort of flat rules. Uh, so again, going back to Mark's, uh, Mark Hermit's For the People, right? All of your all of your Union Generals start out with really high initiative ratings, which means they take really good cards to move. And uh, and so why you know because obviously if if the if the if the Union player could just say, hey, uh, uh, Henry Halleck, get off your butt and move. You know, I, I control your troops. I'm just going to move you, um, and I can do that as much as I want. Then the Civil War would be over really fast. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and, and so Mark could have said, well, look, Halleck just doesn't get to move once per turn, or you can only, you know, whatever. But, but instead he put, he built into the cards this clever mechanic of, of, uh, of look, you know, the Union player has a really good hand, so he's going get, to get a lot of activity out of his normally inactive generals. And as the Confederates, you don't know that, because the Confederates had no idea, uh, historically, that, the, that the, the Union generals would be really reluctant to take offensive action. Um, and, you know, which is another drawback of idiot rules, is, is not only do... Not only is player A hamstrung, player B knows he's hamstrung. Right. Well, the, I mean, um, that's the that's the kind of thing that um, I think it's it's more important to have a player do X because it's uh, because it makes sense to do X rather than because the rules say to do X. Right. I mean, it's, um, GDW's uh, assault. Um, it's it's not impossible for the Soviets to uh, sort of move units individually and um, and sort of give individual. Uh, orders to individual, you know, sort of platoons. But if you do, it's so they become so uh, such hogs in terms of administration points that you're going to be using a fraction of your units every turn. But if you use uh, Soviet, you know, battle doctrine, then you can basically move each of those units at a fraction of its cost. And so that's why you use battle doctrine because it's just easier to move your units. But you don't have to. I mean, you can do other things. Um, sure. So. So yeah, I, I mean, I like the idea of of saying, okay, you know, you can use these forces in sort of a historical way, because that's what made sense. But if you don't want to, you know, these are the, you know, these are the ramifications. But I guess, you know, the thing that I was struck by when I was sort of talking to, uh, talking to Rob about, or not talking to Rob, but emailing back and forth with Rob, but just to figure out what we were talking about today. Um, I was thinking back to some times, um, when I had written about games and I had, so I used to be really puzzled by things. For example, um, there was uh, a game that came out, uh, was put out by, um, by Matrix. Uh, it was done by Western Civ called uh, Crown of Glory. And uh, it was, uh, it was a, a kind of strategic game about the Napoleonic Wars. Now, I really wish it had been good. It didn't really work very well. Um, but because uh, I, I love that period, but then there are really not, no good um, historical games or computer games about that. But uh, the thing about Crown of Glory is that it had a lot of sort of... Um, inexplicable variables that kind of went into it. And I just thought that it was, it was needlessly complicated. The effects didn't really work and you ended up with this kind of imbalanced mess. And then I went on the forums and there were all these people that were saying, yeah, you know, I really wish your, 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 um, uh, your leaders, when they get wounded, they can have variable amount of time that they're in the hospital. I was like, what is wrong with you? I mean, the, the game's completely broken, and you're worried about somebody in the hospital. 
And you know, why are you adding even more uh, complication to this, you know, to this completely overcomplicated game? And then, you know, it wasn't until years later that I kind of figured out that, you know, just because I was looking for, you know, a clean, competitive uh, in- game with interesting mechanics about a certain time period, that may not have been what a lot of people were looking for. And in fact, they may not have cared about any of those things. They may have cared that something that they read about or something that they, you know, sort of internalized as being part of that conflict was in the game. That's what they wanted. They wanted to somehow, you know, relive or reenact or something. The verisimilitude of that game world had to be to their level. And it could be for any number of reasons. And if if you just decided, okay, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, one tank and another tank are functionally equivalent. They'd be like, no, those tanks were totally not equivalent. Even if the game played great and had really clever mechanics, and the you know victory conditions were uh, you know very hotly contested, and two people could could play, there were a lot of different ways that the game could play out. If it didn't have that thing, then something broke for that player, and they just didn't like the game. And I I, I was bef- was completely befuddled by this. Um, until at some point, I don't know why, but I guess I stopped being befuddled by it. And I realized that that's what, you know, players are looking to, in, in some sense, to, you know, recreate whatever historical ideas that they have or to touch history in that certain way. And you, you kind of have to deal with that. You know, it, it's it just because something doesn't make sense mm. from a game standpoint doesn't mean that players may not find it important. Well, this is, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of war game design uh, sometimes ends up reinforcing popular myths about history right? mm-hmm. not just war games but strategy games mm-hmm. it, you know ends up reinforcing uh conventional wisdom that that may have been exaggerated or even completely debunked because you need to make it real for players mm-hmm. and a lot of your like so what's the easiest thing to design for uh th- that's going to make it real for for the most number of, of your of your audience uh it, it's probably going to be you know popularly held assumptions about whatever thing you're modeling and so you won't maybe bring in uh some of the more like revisionist takes or newer re- new, newer research uh, on the topic what you're going to bring in is um you know like eastern front well the soviets were all you know they, they were all chased into battle by commissars with some machine guns that's 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 how the soviet army fought in every battle mm-hmm. uh and, and so you create a game around that uh right. and, and and so i think that's that's an that's an interesting point because yeah the the, the thing is like what makes it, what makes something historically accurate is going to vary from person to person Mm-hmm. And like, and a lot of people like playing. Well, Civil War is a great example, uh, you know, because a lot of people are going to want it to represent, you know, their understanding of the various quality of certain leaders and the quality of like certain regiments. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't exactly reflect that, then well, this game doesn't know what the hell it's talking about, right? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I think that that just goes into you know, people people don't come in as emotional blank slates to these things, and and so when you when 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 they're playing a game and you tell them, oh, you should. Uh, you know, I'm putting you into the shoes of Robert E. Lee or in, into the shoes of uh, of George McClellan. They'll they'll have pre-existing, you know, they'll they'll have preconceived ideas about that, and either your game kind of uh, validates and carries carries those things through, or it doesn't, and then and, and then and then the person either learns from the game or rejects the game. Uh, but I, I agree, I definitely agree that it's har- it's harder for games to act as as critique, uh, especially you know, for historical games to act as critique. Um, 
uh, you know, uh, like like Volkerinka's Labyrinth, which we've talked about on the show before, mm-hmm. uh, is is an excellent example because uh, it very very much encapsulates a very specific worldview about the War on Terror, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, people people agree that like this game makes a lot of sense in terms of encapsulating the mentality of uh, of of of, in, of both sides of the War on Terror. Mm-hmm. But boy, wouldn't it be nice if uh, if they if you know if they'd known things. That we know now, and the answer is, well, yeah, it would have been nice in real life too. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> but that's not how it, that's not uh, that that, that uh, the game would be doing us a disservice without it. And and so um, yeah, I mean, there are people who post on board game games saying, you know, I can't play I can't play this uh, labyrinth game. It's a neocon fantasy. And it's like, well, that's kind of the point. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think that you know this is something that I I'm I'm and I'm fascinated by this whole this whole concept and. Um, I've been doing, a, uh, you know, some videos that for, I decided I would do battle of DNB and foo just because they're, I'm fascinated by that battle. Um, and there are very few games about it. So I felt I could sort of do an overview without, you know, spending 10 years doing it. Um, but I'm fascinated by what, you know, as you said, games as critique, you know, it, it's important when you look at a game, I think to look at the mechanics and see, you know, what are these mechanics really doing or what, are, what are the what do the mechanics say about the designer's understanding of what happened in the battle? Because you can, yeah. you sort of look at, you know, well, you know, these, uh, you know, this artillery, you know, is, is, um, or these, uh, the thing that we've been doing in, 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 um, in DNB and Foo is that, you know, there are all these aircraft counters. Well, in the first two games anyway, I'm like, well, the French air, French air force in DNB and Foo didn't really do Jack. I mean, they were there and they got some lucky hits, but they they were really, really not as effective as the French had ever hoped. And but these, but the counters all exist as though they were, um, you know, all all of the planes that were historically in the battle are depicted by little counters. And so now you have a problem. So I have these planes. Do I give them their historical capabilities? Do I give them their actual technical capabilities? So it doesn't seem to make much sense to have a mechanism where you have a bunch of planes, but every time you try to attack something with them, it doesn't work, which which point it would get very frustrating and it would be a, a mechanic that was uh, sort of just in vain. Or you take the planes out, in which case players are saying, well, where are my you know French bearcats? They had a ton of bearcats. Um, so it, it, it's hard to say... Uh, it, it's it's sort of a more understanding of what the designer thinks was important about the battle and what the designer thinks went into the outcome rather than what actually went to the outcome. I mean, I, I keep that, I that's tell, right. Yeah. Well, uh, and not even not not even that. Like again, to go to Hearts of Iron Four, work in progress. None of mm-hmm. this may be real by the time it comes out. But um, strategic bombers were ridiculous in the build we played. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we're talking like. Their effectiveness w- was like the second bombing campaign against Yugoslavia in, mm-hmm. in like '99. Like yeah. it was that level of like overnight your country's infrastructure is gone, right? Uh, because like and and it was it was clearly unbalanced. But what was interesting is like uh, everything we know now about the efficacy of the strategic bombing campaign uh-huh. against industry uh, in, in Germany and such is that it really was was pretty abysmal in terms of actually inflicting damage on the ability of uh, the Third Reich to sustain its war effort. Well, the revisionists um, are going after that, but yeah, okay, I, I'll, yeah, right. I, it's true. That's, that's well, I, kind of the, yeah. 
Well, th- that's interesting. But I, I didn't know that because that that itself was a revision that came around like the the seventies and eighties. Oh, there right? it's was all getting. The... Everything is getting revised these days, buddy. It's, 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 it's how are you going to how are you going to keep getting twenty posts a minute on Gawker? But well, um, but yes. Anyway, I, I just want I just yeah. wanted to say just real real quick is like so the the question came up like why are these strategic bombers so damn effective and and, and really based on what what a lot of us know now about World War Two uh, they they didn't really shut down German industry effectively at all. They had a pretty minimal impact on, on the ability of, of the Germans to produce military equipment. And the answer came back, well, yeah, but the bombers were there. The campaigns were there. The bomb, the air campaign was there. We can't just have this stuff there and it doesn't do anything. So it kind of has to, uh, you know, kind of has to be there to, to play a role in the game, which is interesting because if, you know, you could argue that uh, destroying the Luftwaffe was probably its greatest contribution to to victory and, and giving uh, the Allies, you know, control over over the airspace in the west uh, in the Western theater. But it, it's interesting that the game sort of has to model the understanding of bomber command uh, in in World War II rather than what we learned later. Right, bomber command and 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 the corresponding incentive of the Germans to invest heavily in defense. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Right, because that because if they don't, then that has distorting effects on the rest of the war. Right, I mean this is whole oh. this whole axiom that you know we're just using this as a but you can use this almost for anything. For like for example, uh, well let's say, let's say the submarine campaign. Right, if you play a World War II game and you show that it's you know it's possible to starve England into submission using you know submarine warfare. And then you say, uh, you know, well, see, it was possible. You say, no, in the particular world that has been created by the particular set of rules that the designer decided to include in his game, in, in that parallel universe, yes, you could have defeated England with, with submarine warfare. But it's, but it's so hard to just say, well, look at the way this game plays, you could have done it. So, so in, in that sense, the critique is really about the. And I, I love looking at different designers and just saying, well, you know, this is, this is a battle, you know, the, all the, you know, thousand battle of the bulge games i'd like to sit down at some point and just say well how did these designers all interpret the battle of the bulge uh bruce real quick because this this actually is just going to bother me all night and, mm-hmm. uh, unless you give me a quick pre-see of, mm-hmm. of the current understanding right now so there's currently a wor- there's currently an effort to sort of revise or well i mean understanding not, of the bombing campaign it's not a cons- it's not like some kind of conspiracy where you no, know no, 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 but, but i mean like it's a trend it's a, it's a trend in historiography <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if I've read some different things. I mean, uh, and it's some of it's stuff. I mean, it, it's not. It's not like it came out last week or last year or last. I mean, there's stuff. I'm, Masters of the Air, I think, makes the makes the point in in, in a sense that um, you know the fact that the Germans had to mobilize such that the the resources mobilized in um, in trying to maintain this uh, productivity. Uh, you know, sort of sort of. Um, uh, Okay, so sort of a reverse it, broken it, broken windows theory of yeah. bomb bombing effectiveness. Yes, right. right. Okay. I mean, it could have, yeah. So I mean, it's it's just uh, there's I I love these things in in the sense that you know reading them all it all makes a good story. Um, it it doesn't really convince me. Nothing really convinces me of anything. Uh, anymore because people can pull up all sorts of. Uh, I just love reading about the history. So I think that the and and for me, I just love seeing how people put their history together in this weird, you know, weird paradigm that we've invented, which is there's a piece of cardboard with a bunch of colors on it and these little square things, or sometimes they're round and you move them around and then history happens. And and I, every time somebody publishes one of these things, I think, gosh, I, I would love to see how whoever it is 
decided to look at whatever it is. Um, to me, that's almost mo- as much fun as playing the game against somebody, but not quite. Yeah, it's, it, uh, this is why I like the trend of, of including extensive designers' notes in games is really fun, mm-hmm. I think. Um, as well as you know, designers putting their interpretation on the different possible outcomes in the game. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking here of uh, going back to Mark Herman, but Fire in the Lake, his recent Vietnam game, right. where he he has he has a, a, probably a full page of designers' notes mm-hmm. explaining why the VC and the NVA are not merely two different factions, but in some sense adversarial to one another. Mm-hmm. And he he asserts, yeah, I mean, he, he concedes, yeah, this is this is not a an uncontroversial interpretation of the relationship between those two mm-hmm. um, between those two factions, but uh, it. It, it is it is my it is it is my considered view having studied the literature and it also makes for a better game so that's yeah. that's why it's why it's in this game this way yeah and I, I completely disagree with them also having studied the literature so I'm I, you know exactly we can come to completely different places uh, yeah so that makes that. it a great example yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it, it, it's I guess in the end but you know so what is historically accurate about that you know I mean is that historically accurate I mean because to me. Uh, I mean, I've played several games. Now. I'm actually currently playing a game of Fire in the Lake by Vassal. I played a couple of, of this is my several, I'm several four player Vassal games into the game now. Uh, and I've played several face to face. And, um, you know, the more I play the game, the more I like the game and the less historical I think it is. I mean, well, that's interesting. It's, it, it's a very weird thing. I really feel that from a historical perspective, the four-player game is completely broken. Okay, I think at this point we need a little bit of context for okay. listeners for for okay. What, I'm sorry. What you're describing so yeah, here. so what we're describing. So we are talking about Mark Herman's game Fire in the Lake. It's the um, coin system. Um, the first game of which was Andean Abyss, uh, which uh, modeled the narco wars in uh, Colombia. <clears throat> the second one was um, a distant plane, which uh, was the uh, war in Afghanistan. The third one was uh, Cuba Libre, which I own but actually have never played because, um, well, because I just have never played it. But that's about the uh, Cuban Revolution. One of my <laughs> favorites in the series. Pardon? One of my favorites. In the really series. interesting. Oh god, that means I have to break I, it I enjoyed a lot. Huh? Okay. It's short. It's short. Very short. Okay. Knife fight. Knife, knife fight in a phone booth. Knife, okay, so I'll, I'll have to check that out then. That that now make, makes me want to play it. Um, but then the last one is uh, Fire in the Lake, which is uh, after uh, Francis Fitzgerald's uh, you know well known uh, book about the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, it uh, it represents the the South Vietnamese, the Arvin, uh, as a faction, the U.S. as another faction, the North Vietnamese Army, the regular army, as a faction, and the Viet Cong as a fourth faction. And um, interestingly enough, all four of these games have four factions, and that's sort of central to the whole mechanic. I think if you if you had fewer than four factions, you would. Uh, I mean, the game just the coin system depends on the game having four factions, so that kind of limits you to the the, um, the situations. Although there's going to be a uh, American Revolution game, Liberty or Death, um, in which the factions are the French, the British, the Patriots, and the Indians. Which A I think is awesome, and B I don't understand why the Patriots aren't called the Traitors. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was actually that's not my mind. That's Rod Humble's. But uh, um, but uh, and then there's another one which is uh, and I forget what the name of the game is, but it's going to be Gallic uh, Wars. Gallic, yeah, it's a, is it just called Gallic Wars? No. I believe so. Oh wow, that's that's so unliterary. Um, but it's yeah, it's basically like uh, it's Roman Gaul. Romans Romans and Gaul putting down the barbarian oh, horde. Sign me up. Yeah, oh, but, yeah, yeah, totally, I, dude. I, I, Come I am, on. I am Apparently, someone made a 
Somebody apparently made Volko a bet that his system doesn't work uh, outside of modern. So we got that game. Awesome. Really? Uh, okay. But Bruce, I want to I hear about this evolution you had. of you, you, you started out in one place, but then the more you play it, the more you like it, and the more you think it's not historical. Yeah, so <clears throat> it, it's an interesting thing for me with this game. I mean, I've, I'm, 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 I haven't played it, you know, 20 times, so I, I, this is all caveats, but really I'm starting to feel like we've had all these situations, like we've had a couple of Arvin wins where um, the, uh, the Arvin gets to a, uh, a victory condition. So the way that the coin system works is that each faction has a victory condition. And there are periodic victory checks that happen in um, in Andean Abyss. It's called coup. Uh, oh, sorry, in, sorry, that's a mistake. In Andean Abyss, they're called propaganda rounds. In um, Fire and Lake, they're called coup rounds. But all it is is that scattered throughout the deck, there are cards which get you to sort of an interphase, and various things can happen. In sort of Fire in the Lake, the U.S. can bring in or or remove troops from the from the theater. Um, the uh, the all the factions get, or the Vietnamese factions, the U.S. doesn't have resources. They have kind of unlimited resources, but they use the Arvin's resources. Everybody gets resources. Um, their uh, guerrillas get flipped back to underground, things like that. And during that interface, and there are only a certain number of those in the game, uh, so, you know, you can count for how long the game is going to go, and you you sort of, after you, because of the way the deck's set up, after you have not had a coup card for a while, you know one's coming up soon. Um, there's a victory uh, condition check and if you're if you're uh, if a given faction is uh has exceeded their victory conditions then the game will end they, as their victory on that coup round uh unless you know something happens in the, the round before the coup round obviously then which is in fire and lake called the monsoon round um is a limited round but people can do all sorts of things to try to you know change the outcome and in the both of the arvin wins that we've had the u.s player has been in this very odd position where he could keep the Arvin player from winning. And the reason for that is that the Arvin, the main mechanism for the Arvin to um, win the game is by controlling territory in terms of population. And the, the, the population can be, they can hate you because they, the, the, another thing about the coin system is you go anywhere from support to opposition. So active support, passive support, neutral, uh, passive opposition, and active opposition. And the U.S. is worried about um, opposition, and the U.S. wants the the um, Vietnamese to support the government. The, the Vietnamese government just wants the um, the Vietnamese people to be under their control, so they have more pieces in any province than than, than uh, anybody else. And so, what happens is you get to the to the coup round. The Arvin has all these uh, provinces that are controlled because there's a combination of U.S. and Arvin forces in them. So what the U.S. could do is they could just start pulling out all their troops from these provinces and, you know, basically cause the Arvin to lose control of those provinces. Uh, and it, yes, it would take the, the Arvin victory level down from the uh, from having achieved their victory to below their victory threshold. And then the game would right, continue. Right, because the Arvin the cares about coin control, not right. personal exactly. control, right? So the, yes, exactly. Right. So the U.S. could do that. And it doesn't hurt the U.S. in the sense that uh, the U.S. is still worried about about um, support, and so this isn't costing the U.S. anything in terms of their victory condition. However, what it does is then it allows the—it uh, it basically leaves the Arvin out to dry, and they are incredibly vulnerable. The, the, the South Vietnamese army in the game is really fragile anyway, 
and they're incredibly vulnerable to then the Viet Cong and the NVA. So really what you do is if you do that as the U.S., at least in the two games that we sort of played through, um, if the U.S. The U.S. player thought about it, you know, am I going to do this? And uh, and the answer was, well, I could do it. We could keep playing. But then I'm basically throwing the game to one of the two insurgent factions. So what's the point? We might as well just end it here. And my um, I was playing the Arvin actually in one of these games when I won. And uh, my my partner, uh, the uh, the U.S. player, sort of thought through the whole thing. It's like, well, I could do this and I could do this. And it would really hose me. But it would really be anti-thematic. And for him, <laughs> that was – well, and, and I understand. You know, why, if he's going to lose – why would he continue playing the game and just hose his his own position and hose my position and throw it to one of the two other people um, who hadn't achieved the rigid condition? And so in that way, and, and the same thing happened. There was a VC win where um, where this happened and the NVA basically just was completely hosed. Um, and those games, however, so, so as far as I'm concerned, the, the game is just completely broken. In terms of uh, in terms of the victory conditions and the different factions, but the way the game plays, I love it. I mean, it's it's it, it gives you so many interesting decisions to make, and each of the little things that you do, like the the events and the way that the the mechanics uh, reflect those events, are beautiful. I mean, they have um, there's uh, you know the way that the U.S. has different actions to take. Everybody has a, an operation and a special activity, um, and then you know one of the U.S. special activities is airstrike. And you can't airstrike um, uh, spaces that don't have coin. That's the um, the uh, government, you know, South Vietnamese or American troops in them, unless you have the arc light card. And arc light is for some people don't know it was the B fifty two strike, um, the sort of using B fifty two bombers as as uh, sort of uh, heavy support. And um, if you have that card and you take the event. Now, one of your um, one of your spaces that you strike uh, during the with the airstrike event or airstrike uh, activity can be someplace where you don't have uh, any of your coin pieces. So that means that now the NVA and the Viet Cong, especially the NVA, though, because they have to worry about their bases, uh, have to be very wary of the um, of the coin player exposing all the guerrillas that are guarding a base and then coming in and, and the U.S. throwing in uh, an arc light strike and using that arc light on that one space, even though there are no coin units there. Because uh, otherwise, you could just take out the coin units with an mm-hmm. attack when they move in. So um, it's really... I just feel that the game flows so well. There are so many difficult decisions to make. Each individual decision that you make feels very historical because of the way that, how well the cards are uh, designed. But the actual effect it completely blows up for me. So moment to moment, it's theme heavy, and oh, then if you when you step back, it's historical. Only only when you get to the very sort of end, right. and you think, "Oh, I'm winning this game." Oh, or somebody else is winning this game, but I don't really want to. You know, my my natural reaction to that is going to be to basically lose the war because I don't want this guy to win, so I'm going to lose the war so that those guys can win. Um, it, it just you get to this point. Where the game, comp- I mean, it completely to me just completely collapses. And and mm-hmm. interestingly, I don't mind that. I I love the you know thirty turns that we played beforehand. Uh, it's it's a very it's very strange. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, each of the coin games, uh, although they have four players, they have uh, a different, a slightly different relationship and configuration with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, you know, Mark. Mark said at a convention, I think that uh, that if the if the U.S. in Fire in the Lake can't win, 
uh, Arvin winning is kind of a moral victory, mm -hmm. right? right? But the other two winning is not a moral victory, right. right? You have kind of a partner, in a sense, that you really don't have, for example, in um, in uh, Andean Abyss, where uh, each of the four factions really is just not on board with any of the others. Right, except for the um, AUC and the government a little bit. I think that's a very interesting relationship that they have. But yeah, yeah I agree with you. Potentially, yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, and, and, and I think this is also the case, uh, you know, this is also kind of, the, I mean... This is kind of the case in the American Revolution one where, uh, you know, where the, the Native Americans uh, are kind of rooting for the British because that, uh, that keeps the colonies contained. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but obviously they prefer to win themselves, but if they can't win, they prefer the British to win. And I think... Um, mm, not the French? I, I think just... Uh, so I guess because the French are... I, I'm not sure what a French victory actually entails mm -hmm. historically, mm. you know, in context mm -hmm. in that game yet because it's not out yet. Um, but... Uh, so, so I think, um, you know, and of course, they also vary in how many coin players there are, right? I mean, in um, in uh, Fire in the Lake, there's two coins and two insurgents, and and in Abyss, there's one coin and three insurgents, mm -hmm. uh, and it's just kind of and Cuba Libre is the same as Andean Abyss that way. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, but I think um, and, and so I, I think there I, I think bringing thematic elements into you know your calculation as to well if i can't win then i'm picking um i'm picking this guy to win because historically i would want him to win more mm -hmm. if i were role-playing as 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 this as my faction you know i think that's i think that's fine i mean it's certainly better than all the other reasons to play kingmaker <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i understand that i guess i just feel like it's not um it, the game just breaks for me at that point because uh i, I mean there's things you can do during the game to, you know, sort of hose your partner in, in Fire and the Lake, which yep. I just don't feel – I just don't like doing that much. Um, well, actually, that's no, not true because when I play the VC, I love hosing the NBA because I hate communists either way. But, um, you know, if I'm playing the Arvin, I don't want to hose the Americans. And if I'm playing the Americans, I, I actually feel like we have a different re relationship um, than the other two factions do, which is also probably a historical. But, um, but I just feel like – Playing in that way in that situation is it just doesn't doesn't sit for me um, doesn't sit for me historically the way it would in uh, in Andean Abyss which I think is the best game of of all of them but of course I haven't played uh, Cuba Libre but there that's a thing where you have a government you have uh, you know some paramilitaries that um, certainly don't want the uh, the communists to win. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they want to maintain their own power. They, ha you have these, um, drug dealers that just want to sell drugs. And, um, you know, you have this, uh, communist player that really is, you know, who's, who's, you know, enemy really is the government and can use the, uh, the drug dealers and even uh, the paramilitaries in some sense to, um, against them. So, uh, I feel like that works the best, at least, although I, of all the situations, I know the least about the, uh, Colombian, uh, Colombian drug wars. So, um, but but I, th I guess we've gotten a little bit away from mm -hmm. the from the question. Uh, I, I guess one thing I wanted to mention was that you know Rob had mentioned the. Did you have you used the word rivet counting yet, or Rob, or did you yeah, just use yeah, that I, in, I email used to it me? In the email, but yeah, I'm not in the, the email, place. but not in here. So I mean, I also felt like you know this rivet counting stuff, you know, in like especially used in like you know flight sims and things like that. Um, bothered me for a long time and then i once again i sort of came to this understanding um that uh well it's just you know it's what those if the players if the cowling doesn't look right for the for a given player he might just not want to play the game because that's something important you know that visual 
that visual appearance is really important to him or knowing that something is in the game, whether it has an effect on the game or not, is really important to somebody. Um, I, I do have one question. Um, how do you guys feel about historical accuracy in something like uh, like revising games where you basically, you know, something... I, um, I have one particular game in mind where this is, you know, things change all the time because of different understandings of what happened in history. But can you can you have uh, histor- uh, historical games that uh, that get revised based on based on new understandings of the situation, or does the situation get too entrenched and and basically they have to kowtow to uh, to players? I think Ananda mentioned that about how you know you or maybe Rob did about well, the propagating. Are games. you talking about uh, like okay, so? In terms of games being revised to reflect mm-hmm. a changing well, understanding, not games, or but different, you know, different, different, different uh, treatments games. of a subject. Yeah, different treatments. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that does happen. Yeah, uh, a, a little bit. But but give me a moment to think about it. Now, does anything mm-hmm. occur to you? Um. Well, I think uh, I think that could happen. Sure. I mean, um, World War One. You know, mm-hmm. paths, paths of glory, arguably. Uh, uh, was a large was largely and a number of Ted's other games about World War One are largely attempts to diffuse common understanding of, of how World War One combat worked, especially when Eagles fight. Right, his mm-hmm. his whole purpose in When Eagles fight was to sort of overthrow the idea that look, all World War One combat was static. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, historically, you know, the Eastern Front was very was very mobile, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, and people are surprised by that and delighted by it, and that's that's great. That's what you want your games to do. Um, but. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, def- I definitely think like uh, evolution of the understanding of something on like World War One um, is uh, has has definitely affected how World War One games work. Um, I think uh, if unless new material about the mentality or decision making process that the participants went through becomes available, I mean, I think that's one of the best reasons to you know to to revisit the topic uh, with a different spin. Um, so I, I would just throw out there, uh, we just talked about Attila, uh, Total War Attila, last week on the show, which uh, out of nowhere uh, has, be- has become maybe my favorite Total War game of, of all time. Uh, I mean, it's just a, just a terrific Total War game, and possibly the, the best one is a strategy game uh, ever That's made. That's an ex- ex- extension to Rome, or? No, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a standalone. Uh, it's a standalone, okay. which is probably for the best, but it takes a lot of the things that were sort of um, loose ends in Rome and, and gives them new life and applies them in this new setting. But what's interesting is this. So Total War Attila is basically doing exactly what the original Barbarian Invasion expansion for Rome Total War, uh, you know, years and years and years ago, uh, it's basically doing exactly that. It's telling the exact same story uh, that, that they told with Barbarian Invasion uh, like 10 years ago. What's interesting is that uh, in the intervening years, uh, there was this sort of reappraisal of how we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire and how it it always like games tend to really adopt that 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 sort of uh, Renaissance like and and Gibbon like understanding of the the fall of the Roman Empire as being this this uh, almost tragic ending. Uh, of something, right, right. This, this, sort of moral moral decline, and yeah, this historical disaster and historical disaster for the West, and and the trend in in uh, you know history right now is to say, well, actually, like the they weren't barbarians; they 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 were actually these really dynamic cultures and civilizations who were 
Uh, they they weren't the same people that they'd been, you know, two three hundred years earlier when the Romans first encountered them. Uh, you know, they evolved and changed, and circumstances changed. There was there's a lot of dynamism among these these different barbarian tribes, and they all had these really distinctive cultures, and they they all had distinct ways of behaving, and they were all facing unique pressures. Uh, you know, around this time. And so you need to stop looking at it from purely this Roman perspective of, oh my God, there's, there's all these people uh, wearing basically different forms of, uh, of fur and carrying spears, pouring over your borders and killing you. Um, historians are, are saying, well, actually, you're better off now looking at it as more this, uh, you know, multipolar world suddenly where there's all these, all these actors with their own interests. So Barbarian Invasion 10 years ago, is basically purely Roman centric. Oh my God! Look at all these barbarians and their you know numberless hordes, and it's all going straight to hell. Uh, and that's kind of how the game depicted it. Attila is actually very much more about uh, the, the various tribes and their interactions with each other and their own unique cultural ident- cultural identities and their own their own faction identities reflected in in, in units and, and available tech. Uh, and so it's this interesting case of okay, same subject, but Flash forward 10 years, and they've made a much more interesting strategy game, in part because it's not this, it, it's not Gibbon the game anymore. It's it's now basically, um, it, it's sort of a more revisionist take, a more modern take on, on how the story unfolds. Isn't that John Cracker? I mean, John Cracker. Oh my God, I'm sorry. John Schaefer. Schaefer, I'm sorry that I called you John Cracker. I have no idea why that just came out of my mouth. Um, isn't that John Schaefer's uh, approach with... Um, uh, at the gates, with his yeah. game at the gates as well, yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's a different, different um, sort of. Uh, I, I guess I kind of have to hand it though to, um, you know, to a game like World of Warcraft, which is where they, you know, they find out that you know if Frostbolt really wasn't <laughs> as powerful as it was, so that they just you know go ahead and they don't worry about you know how they just change the game and you know right. they find out that you know a druid didn't really have all those you know all those uh, sigils or whatever the little totems, so they just changed the. Every, they're, they're always researching and finding out the new things that happen in the world of Warcraft. So I, I, <laughs> I think I take my hats off to them. <laughs> what about you, Bruce? Have you, like, can can you point to any games that like reflect a revisionist understanding of, uh, or a developed understanding of a topic? Mm, you know, that's a hard one. Um, I think that um, I think I think that some of the uh, I think that some of the games that uh, that sort of do um, D-Day, actually, I think D-Day games have have evolved uh, from uh, from simply these uh, you know games where the where the um, the allies land and the uh, the Germans sort of either pounce on them uh, at on the beaches or sort of pull back and make this line. I think uh, games, I think one of the best games like that, the breakout Normandy uh, really showed kind of how much of a dance that was uh, between the uh, allies trying to establish a foothold and the, and the Germans try to throw them back. Um, but I think that also is, you know, part one of the, the confounding factors though, I think if we're going to do a study about these things um, is that game mechanics, and I'm sure Ananda uh, has seen this uh, as well as game mechanics have just become so much more, um, sophisticated and i don't mean complex i mean so much we're so much better at designing games about things now than we were in like 1970 where it's like okay you know at waterloo have a dice table yeah uh so the uh you know the french were uh, had you know three uh, you know attack factors um at el alamein 
the uh, the free French had like uh, two attack factors. And I mean, you could almost take the counters and just put them in, you know, somewhere else and just say, oh, yeah, well, this isn't really out of out of place. You know, there's an attack factor, there's a movement factor and blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, now we have all these different ways of introducing variability and and hidden information and sort of, um, you know, uncertainty into games and and uh, giving players, you know, uh, risk benefit choices and sort of um, I just think that I think games because they have become more uh, be- become more sophisticated in, me- in a mechanical sense, do a lot better job of uh, all offering alternative uh, alternative outcomes. Because in the past, it was just like, well, in order to beat me, you have to either roll really well or you have to do you know this enforced arithmetic uh, you know over and over better than I'm doing the enforced arithmetic. Um, and now you can. Sort of, it's a, it's a more dynamic thing. W- one other thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about: what about alternate history? Is that do, can you oh. should you put N- stuff like NATO that? nukes and Nazis? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, or, or even like when I'm you know when I'm I'm um, uh, doing these DNP and foo things, and I, there's the idea of you know what about U.S. intervention, right? I mean, they really talked about it. Uh, you know, ultimately, I don't think Eisenhower had any any intention of doing it at all without, you know, the British being on board and the British were never going to be on board. So it was kind of a non-starter, but I don't know that that's the truth. I mean, what about having American airstrikes on Dien Bien Phu? And then what about the Chinese? I mean, is that, if you don't include that stuff, are you not being historically accurate? I I think it depends. So, I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, Mm -hmm. but I think it depends on how worried the historical participants were about those things, Mm -hmm. right? A civil war game that has no possibility of European foreign intervention Mm -hmm. Um, is in some sense doing a little bit of disservice. Uh, even I mean, even, regardless of exactly how it's modeled, they're doing some sense of disservice because, of course, the North was terrified that that uh, if the South was able to string together some victories uh, and get in the right ears, then uh, that, that Britain and France would uh, would side with the South. Um, and and so to, to get to get the player feeling that level uh, of appropriate terror, uh, the game has to support that. Um, I mean, I also, I also think that hist- I mean, so, so in 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 the Twilight Struggle uh, Collector's Edition, there's a sort of, there's a sort of set of historical variants that is a little mini game that you can play mm-hmm. uh, just to freshen up the setup, which mm-hmm. is, I think, that's just a different agenda. You know, that's just we want to, you know, our players have been playing for years and years with the same setup, so why not give them something mm-hmm. to play around with? Right. But um, but I think uh, I I do think um, alternate history outcomes that were uh. That were likely, or even if they weren't actually likely, but thought were, you know, but were considered to be so at the time, right. um, uh, are definitely worth including. So, uh, in Imperial Struggle, which I'm I'm uh, working on right now, I'm hoping to deliver to GMT uh, as, as I can. Mm-hmm. Honestly, mm-hmm. Um, get, getting a new job and relocating across the country has certainly uh, yeah, slowed down my sure. my side project. Um, but uh, one of the things that I was just absolutely struck by when doing the research on Imperial Struggle was how fluky everything was. Um, so the Battle of Kibron Bay, which essentially, which guaranteed the uh, territorial safety of Britain during the Seven Years' War, um, you know, which and, and cracked the French Navy, um, that so easily could have gone the other way. It so easily could have gone either, you know, just a, as a push, or could have gone as a French victory. And if the French had won that, they could have invaded the home islands um, in, in just the same way that they could have uh, later during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, they, they had they had an army and a, and a, and a fleet ready to go. Uh, and to carry the troops, and so uh, not modeling that would be um, would be a uh, a disservice mm-hmm. uh, to to the to the game. 
uh, you know, similarly in India, um, the amount of luck that the British had uh, in the form of, of Robert Clive just being able to put together, uh, you know, to overcome his, his severe depression um, and, uh, and, and string together uh, a couple of just overwhelming victories uh, in South India uh, led to the creation of the British Raj. And that could have gone the other way. It absolutely could have gone the other way. And to, to put those out of bounds, uh, aside from making the game just a lot less fun for the French player, <laughs> um, to put those possibilities out of bounds... Um, I think would also just get the British player into a sense of uh, complacency that would break the spirit of the game. I think it's it's so much a question of framing too, like uh, because I, I think for a lot of those things, like I think it's weird if you're playing like a civil war game that's basically purely focused on the campaigns to have foreign intervention be the like some sort of major factor that, that that could come up right but if you're playing like a strategic sure. level of course that absolutely needs to be something that the north is devoting yeah. resources to to prevent uh cuz yeah but it, that gets to the earlier point about that gets to the earlier point about who's you know whose emotional state are you trying to put the player yeah, in because it can't, it can't be it can't be everyone um hmm. and that's actually another example that's that's another example of uh so so there that, that speaks to Bruce's earlier point about why why are you worried about how long people are wounded <laughs> in the hospital as a result of uh, you know in this in this otherwise broken game? Part of it is is that it's that it's that they may not think they they may not want to be in this exactly the same shoes that you do. But another um an, another part is uh, actually the Civil War is also a good example of I think uh, what you were asking about earlier, Rob, which was um uh, games that reflect reflect uh, revision or like a revisitation because. Civil War games these days have a lot more emphasis on the politics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, so many of the Civil War designs I've seen, both in prototype form and, and published, they they address the political elements of the Civil War much more acutely than uh, even grand strategy games of yesteryear did. Now, is that, uh, is, is that um, just a function, you think, of the battles themselves having been done to absolute death? Uh, or, or do you think there's something else going on there? Um, I, I think, uh, I, I think it, it just re reflects an evolving level of interest in the, in, in the, in the grand strategy layer, which I think just wasn't seen as all that interesting before, because how's, how does the South win, you know? And the answer is the, the South can only win politically. <laughs> well, and, and also sort of, you know, and I, I can't speak to these games, but something that I, I find interesting and I, I think is is compelling on the strategic or operational level is why doesn't the Union win sooner? Why why do they have all these resources and, and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of good effective officers underneath underneath the layer of cruft? Why does it take so long to, to get their act together? And the politics of, of the... the uh, of Union command uh, during the war is is another interesting topic to, to sort of get right. at why the war has the ultimate shape it does. And once once someone figured out how to handle that elegantly, it's kind of opened a floodgate. Well, that's that's something I, uh, that that's a topic I've actually been mulling over lately. You know, you brought it up a little bit about like games being revisionist. You know, just in light of um, you know Apple's decision to pull all the that terrible decision to pull all the Civil War games from the App Store. Uh, because mm -hmm. oh, they have God. a Confederate flag, which they have now backed off. Yeah, that's what I hear. Great, so the, the, that's the, that's fixed. Wow. Uh, certainly, certainly the one instance of uh, of command of Commander Gettysburg. I forget the name of the exact ultimate game, General? but they were great. Yes, yeah, ultimate. They were informed that they can put the get put the Confederate flag back in. Great. <laughs> uh, 
but it, it was one of those things where it, it did get me thinking. And, and it, Apple's Apple's response was really knee jerk and had nothing to do with the, with the actual you know, issues at hand. It was just this this like we need to get the symbol off our pay, store pages and 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 erase it. Uh, but but it did get me thinking of like. You know, it, it's one of those things where the, the appeal to, well, that's history and you you can't touch it. It's one of those things where, like, Civil War gaming, in a lot of ways, talking about things not being able to re- be revisionist, Civil War gaming, in, in a lot of ways, has never been this totally neutral thing. A lot of times, if you're making a Civil War game, you're also kind of indulging in the Lost Cause myth, because that's what is history to a lot of people. It's very hard to make a, certainly a Battlefield Civil War game, uh, that, that doesn't sort of mythologize uh, the exact same figures who, who've been mythologized all these years. Uh, and that's something that's, you know, I've, been, I've been sort of thinking about the, the last few days is that our understanding of like, historical accuracy when it comes to like, Civil War gaming uh, is often sort of constrained by this, you know, the, this very narrow lens that says, well, here's what, here's what we should focus on, which is wasn't Robert E. Lee fantastic? And all that other stuff right. we don't want to talk about. Did it make it too heavy? I made it too heavy. <laughs> no, I well, mean, it's, I don't know it's too heavy. I mean, it's just a lot of, if, you, if you're going to go there, then you have to talk about, um, you know, all the other things that are historical about certain things that aren't in, you know, in war games. Right. So, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. There is, there's one of the, well, and, and that's something else that there, just one other thing I want to touch on is, um, what was interesting is is sort of do you remember there was that controversy around Company of Heroes 2 uh, about like how wildly unpopular that game was in in Russia or how much controversy it got into mm. uh, because that has become contested space historically huh. and so like lots of Russian PC gamers were sort of reacting to it as this you're propagating Western myths about the Soviet army mm-hmm. in the war that do a disservice to the 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 Soviet troops who died during mm-hmm. the war. Yeah. Uh and, and so it became one of this thing where where there's this real like uh really intense debate mm-hmm. about the the historical accuracy and truthfulness mm-hmm. uh, of Company of Heroes 2. Sure. I I I think that's I think that's very legitimate, right? I mean just because uh I mean I I have my own opinions about the actual facts involved there, but um, you know whether or not people agree with me, it doesn't really matter. I think um, the uh, the fact is that people engaging games in that way, uh, which addresses sort of their understanding of history, just shows you how relevant games really are. Yeah, I mean that speaks to the that's that speaks to the Apple. You know why I think one of the reasons why we why we feel like the Apple decision was a bad one, right? Because mm-hmm. You know, they pulled they pulled games off, but they they didn't pull movies off, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, right. Yeah, uh, exactly. And uh, and that just right that just suggests that games have not reached uh, in, in that in at that layer of consciousness the, the the level of of being able to say something meaningful or descriptive about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, one last question I just wanted to to throw open before we call it here, and I want to talk about the really minute historical accuracy. And the example I gave to Ananda in the email before the show is um, games like ASL, or you could even mm-hmm. say the Gary Grigsby games, mm-hmm. break a lot of rules 
that we commonly understand now about streamlined games and keeping it simple and sort of getting at the truth of a subject without bogging mm-hmm. down a minutiae of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's these games that sort of have this, like... They revel in the minutiae. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and almost successfully. And and, sure. the, the, and for me, I, the, what I wanted to ask you is, I wanted you sort of like, what's the deal with historically accurate games? I, I kind of wanted Thanks, to ask Mark. you, like, why, do they, why, do, why are they able to... Why are these games able to break all those rules and say, you know what, we are going to model everything down to the last freaking belt buckle and the last magazine and a soldier's, you know, and a soldier's kit? Uh, that's how we're going to model this war, and they become like design legends for it. Um, I'm curious, why is that? Is that is that good historical accuracy? It, like, how how are they employing it effectively that makes those games work? When a lot of times that level of detail is just cruft that 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 kills the experience. I mean, I, I think I think that they are they're they're they become legends because they are like Icarus. You know, they're they're going they're 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 promising what they're promising is simulation, right? They're promising that look, we are going to provide this incredibly detailed and 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 and, and well thought out simulation. And so you, the player, can be assured. You can be assured that if you if you play correctly, then that's you know if you if your decisions are 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 yield the outcomes that would have happened had you been there, right? Had you been the commander there, and you have done and you've done things differently, knowing all these knowing all these things that we now know, you too you would you would have had these outcomes, and and that's what would have happened. And um. And I think, I mean, I, I think that's just, I mean, that's just a fool's errand. <laughs> I'm not saying the games can't be fun, uh, but but I, th- I think that they are ultimately sort of inviting players to fantasize about uh, the level of simulation that that they promise with the detail. Like the the the, the, the level of detail there is is basically sort of uh, imperial clothing for. Uh, for what the player is really kind of secretly hoping for, which is which is validation through simulation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I but I, I think you're serving the same audience that has wanted this forever. I mean, I, I could walk over to my closet right now, pull out 10, 15 games, Longest Day, Campaigns for North Africa, Atlantic Wall, Three Days of Gettysburg, uh, La Bataille de la Moscowa. Um, you know, just keep going on and on and on about these giant games that, you know, simulated, supposedly simulated, um, these, you know, historical events with, you know, as much detail as possible. Fire in the East and Scorched Earth, you know, um, it's, that is the audience that wanted um, this kind of game in the old, you know, 40 years ago, people were looking for this stuff. I mean, I think that's why Squad Leader got invented. Um, And now we can actually do it without, you know, having games that, can ever be finished because people can simply turn their computers off when they're not playing the game uh, and doesn't have to take up, you know, the entire ping pong table and more in the basement. So, um, so as far as design legends, I mean, I just feel like that is the, that's sort of at the heart of what war game, the war game hobby was or is to some, to some group of people. I mean, if people just love to pull out the, uh, I, I had a experience just, uh, few months ago well this last fall but 
one of the uh, one of the guys in our local advanced squad leader group uh, really wanted to pull out, um, you know, La Bataille de Moscow and just play with using this this impulse system that ultimately just was completely impossible to make work. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to have all the units sort of moving simultaneously. And so, you know, <laughs> right, the, right, right, exactly. So and, and so, right, I go, you go, the ultimate violation exactly. of historical accuracy. Yeah. So right. and, 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 you know, we set it up and it was I had a good time. You know, we we got through like two turns. We realized it was completely unplayable. I mean, you could you have to you had to remember which guys moved. I mean, there's there's like, you know, each side has like 500 units and you're trying to remember which, you know, line infantry, whether they turned or not. Um, but uh, but, you know, we just had a good time and half the fun right. was setting it up. I mean, and, and that's what exactly yeah, right. Yeah. It's a fantasy. You're yeah. you're being inv- you're you're being invited to sort of sort of immerse yourself in this. And and like, I don't I mean, I don't begrudge people. No, play those games. And I don't. No. And I don't deny that there's a market there. And frankly, that market still exists in a different form today. Right. I mean, absolutely. Half my office loves to play Counter-Strike Go. Right. Counter-Strike Go. So, I mean. So ASL, right? You know, mm-hmm. models, uh, you know, the effects of the height of the wheat in the wheat field, right. uh, to you know, to an absurd degree. But I mean, but it's I go you go, right? I go you go is is, is fundamentally just a historical, and I mean, they have way, you know, they have op fire and, and and prep fire and all that 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 help that try to compensate for it. But ultimately, you know, it's still I go you go. You know, half my office plays Counter Strike Go for a hobby. Counter Strike Go models. Um, in some level of exquisite detail, the functional differences between hundreds of guns mm-hmm. that are you that you right. can use, right. right? But the game is not realistic because you don't you never get tired, right? Like you can run around the map all day and and jump and jump up on the ledges and stuff and climb and sure. and, and you 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 move you move and jump at ahistorical speeds and with ahistorical or you know with unrealistic speed and unrealistic uh, ability to mm-hmm. sustain uh, physical activity. But but the guns are really realistic, right? Right. <laughs> right? Like, and and so that audience, I mean, that 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 is still there, right? The the detail, you know, the the level of detail, the the gamer that wants that level of detail is just, you know, the the younger version of that gamer is just playing shooters. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and yeah, and I and I used to, I guess, in some sense, I used to resent that because I didn't really connect with that so much, um, and I felt like doing all these games was sort of. Um, you know, taking time away from the designers that were really talented, that could do stuff that was really clever and interesting, like Mark Herman, you know, how come Mark Herman didn't have, uh, you know, this, all these, um, these uh, resources to make a computer game. But, uh, but because the hobby has just grown so much and just had this explosion of, of, of product and designer and, and, and players. And, and it's just so robust now. I I don't begrudge anybody anything you want. You want to play a game that, uh, you know, requires you to spend, you know, not, there was one guy that told me that, uh, that he could do, he could do a first turn of war in the Pacific in under nine hours. I'm like, okay, man, we're, we're totally talking about just different either points in life that we're at or, (laughs) uh, you know, whatever. But I, but hey, I, and but but that's not a, that's not meant to be disrespectful. It's just that that's not what I'm doing. But that's if you're going to do that, that's just totally fine. And I would actually love to stand over your shoulder and watch you do it um, for a while. Um, I I, I kind of envy people who are able to do that. Um, uh, I, I I may have been able to do that at one point. I I can't right now. And I think my my attention level of attention. I'm going to start forgetting things that I did in the first three hours when I get to like hour six. But um, but I love it. I mean, I, I really, I do really love the fact that people can do that and that they enjoy it and uh, that all these different kinds of games sort of um, enhance people's understanding of and connection with history in different ways. Yeah, I, I agree. I, uh, I I feel like, I feel like the, the hobby has, yeah, the hobby has grown where there's just, there's just room for every fantasy there. Mm-hmm. 
Agreed. And we will leave it there. I will leave off my my questions about why armor slope and round penetration matter so much, and why oh, that's you can't... just that's just the next that's the next one. We're talking about that next week. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's our next show. Actually, <laughs> yeah, okay. armor okay. slope and round penetration, an hour long right. discussion. Uh, but I want to thank you so much, uh, both of you, so much for for participating in this discussion and. Uh, putting a lot of meat on, on that bones of a topic I brought you. Uh, th- thanks a lot for the great discussion. Awesome. Oh, thanks for the, thanks for the suggestion Thank for you. having me. Yeah. All right. We'll be back next week with uh, some other sort of topic. Uh, don't know what I can <laughs> promise just yet. I have a bachelor party to attend this weekend. So Ooh. God knows what will happen. Uh, God knows what will be recorded in the next week. Uh, but until then, this has been through Zed. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night.